invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, you got to love exegetical preaching. When you just go through whole books, it means that last week I got to preach on wives submitting to your husbands, and this week I get to preach on uh, slaves obeying your masters. Um, but it's what... Uh, it's one of the reasons I really do love exegetical preaching is it forces you to, to really dig into God's word into areas you would not normally touch. And, uh, and it has been incredibly rewarding for me to do this. I've loved working through Ephesians. We only have a couple more weeks in it, and then we begin a series on the gospel through the life of Jonah. Um, we'll begin that in a couple of weeks. But till then, we have Ephesians chapter 6 before us. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. And this is the word of the Lord. If you would pray with me. Father, I pray that through your spirit, we would hear your word clearly, not because we want to know just more about you, but because we want to know you we want to know your son, Jesus, who is the way to you. And so I pray that things would be clear, that you would um, shake the cobwebs off our dull minds, that you would break up hardened hearts so that we might receive your word. I pray that my word would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, may your words remain and may they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. I heard Tim Keller once say that although the world has largely rejected Christianity, it has plundered our ethics. Though the world has largely rejected Christianity, it has plundered our ethics. And this is true. Uh, where Christianity has gone forth over the last 2,000 years, we see entire societies changed in the way that they view uh, marriage, women, children, slavery, workers, with Christianity's belief that all people are created equal, all are in God's image, all have an innate dignity to them, and that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, we're to treat others with the way that we would like to be treated. When that goes forward, we see that a formerly oppressive society becomes utterly transformed. All one has to do is look at the places in the world where Christianity has never set foot. It's never gone. And when you go to those places, you will see 
a drastically different way that women, children, and workers are treated. Uh, There is a reason that Christianity spread most rapidly through the poor and the oppressed. It's because it was good news for those who were poor and who were oppressed, and it raised them up from their position. Now, last week, we looked how Jesus transformed marriage. Um, And and I didn't talk about this last week, but really, if you were to study first century marriages, you would see they, they don't look anything like ours now, but in first century Roman and Greek cultures, women were essentially treated as property. Men had absolutely absolute authority over their wives. They could divorce them on a whim. Adultery was expected, um, even seen as good. You, you had wives for having legitimate children, but you had concubines and prostitutes for everything else. And then comes along Christianity with this idea that we were to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And now the husbands are to sacrifice and to love their wives. And, and so with all this talk of submission and respect and sacrificial love and tenderness and even two people becoming one flesh for life, when that came on the scene, it utterly transformed the way the world viewed marriage. And now this morning, we're going to see how, in addition to Christ transforming marriages, he transforms the way we we think of families and the way we think of work. Basically, there is not an area in our lives that Jesus does not transform. And so, first, let's look at family here. Let's look at the way that Jesus transforms our relationships that we have between a parent and a child. Once again, first three verses, chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Okay, so the fifth commandment that we have is that we should honor our parents, honor our father and mother. And the Ten Commandments, when when they're laid out, that's the fifth commandment. But notice that that we don't hear that we are to obey our parents, but we are to honor them. We're to honor them. We shouldn't always obey our parents. As we age and we move out of our parents' household, we, we no longer need to obey them, but we should always, for life, try to honor them. But when we were young, though, which is what Paul is talking about here, honoring our parents looks like obedience. When Paul says, children, obey your parents, uh, the word he uses for child there is just that. It's a child. This is someone young enough to where they're still living under the protection and the provision of their parents. And now notice Paul does not say that these children are to love their parents that they are to trust their parents. He just says you're you're to obey your parents. Honoring looks like obedience for a child. Uh, There's a lot of scripture that talk about the same principle. Uh, Let me give you my favorite. Uh, My favorite is Proverbs 30, 17. You might want to write this down, parents. Uh, It says, the eye that mocks the father 
and scorns to obey the mother will be plucked out by the ravens and will be eaten by the vultures. Um, you should probably make your children memorize that one. Actually, that, that scripture there, and, and there's a number like it, is really not any different than what Paul is teaching here in Ephesians. He's basically saying, hey, children, if you disobey your parents, there's a good chance something bad's going to happen to you. There's a good chance you might have your eye plucked out by a raven or something along those lines, an accident that leads to a shorter life. This is why Paul says this is the first promise we have, or the first commandment we have, where there's a promise. You obey this, you live longer, you live a better life. And and this is a a general principle, um, which of course we all know is true. Um, Parents, they warn their kids of dangers. They try to break their kids of bad habits. They try to teach them how to live a good and safe life. And children, if you listen to that, things are going to probably turn out all right. Uh, You you realize, parents, early on that when you have these kids, um, they really don't know anything. They really don't. Uh, You're astonished at the things that you have to tell them that just seem like common sense. And so, you know, for instance, there's the classic, don't run with scissors, okay? That's pretty common sense, but you have to actually tell that to your children, not to run with scissors, or don't run across the road, or don't put metal things in the microwave, or don't play with matches, or put the hot poker down. Um, Don't drink from the toilet. Uh, Don't eat roaches, or caterpillars, or grasshoppers, or, or anything that you find. Put the snake down. Um, no, that will not work as a parachute. Uh, so, so all of those have been things I have said. I have had to say every one of those things. And even as I'm saying them, like, I can't believe I have to tell you that that will not work as a parachute. But you have to say this as a parent. And if they listen to me, they live. And if they don't listen to me, then they have a horrible accident. And so that's what Paul's getting to here. Now, children, you're told to obey your parents not because they're perfect or not because they deserve it. Many times, parents don't deserve to have their children obey them. They don't. But children, you are told to obey them because you are to obey Jesus. That's why Paul says here, obey your parents in the Lord. And once again, like we saw last week, Paul is attaching every command to the Lord. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Christ, or uh, husbands, sacrifice for your wives as Christ gave himself for the church. Now, children, obey your parents in the Lord. It's only out of obedience to Jesus. It's only through his spirit that we can really be obedient children. Now, after addressing the children here, Paul then moves to talk to the parents. That's what he's in verse 4. You know, he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Some of your translations might say exasperate your children. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. 
Now, I don't know why the moms get a pass here, all right? I, I don't know why Paul decides to just address the fathers. Um, it, it, my theory is he actually knows fathers. Um, and fathers tend to be the ones who exasperate their children. Uh, fathers tend to, way more than the moms I know, it's the dads who bring their children to anger. And so that's why I think he's addressing the fathers here. Now, this would have been pretty radical in this culture to now tell the fathers how they're supposed to act um, before their children because fathers could do whatever they wanted to their children in this day. Um, Fathers literally owned their children like you would own property and they could do whatever they wanted with them. Even they had power over, over their life. Life or death rested in the hand of a father. When a child was born, the father didn't pick it up. The child was to be discarded. And that happened too often if the child happened to be a girl, would be discarded like trash. But that, that power over, over a child's life extended for the entire life of that parent. The father could literally kill his child and never be prosecuted for it. So to now address a father and say, hey, there's limits to your authority and you need to act this way would have been really countercultural. Paul says you're not to provoke your children to anger. You're not to exasperate them. You're not to infuriate them. You're not to constantly make them angry. Now, literally, there are hundreds of ways that fathers can do this. Um, I know because I've done them. I've done them all. Um, fathers, we do this, I have found, when we over-discipline, when we're constantly riding our children, we're nagging them. And I don't know about you, but I have found, dads, that I often do this most about things that are not sin issues. I often nag my children about things like tidying their room or this is the way you would make your bed or put your dishes up when, you're, when you've used them. Those might not be sin issues, but I find that those are the ones I tend to ride them the most on. We exasperate our children also when we are inconsistent in our discipline with them. When they never know what's going what's to get them punished and what's not or if we're inconsistent in our affection, or when we are stubborn or unreasonable. There have been a number of times that um, I'm arguing with one of my children, and then I realize that I'm actually the one who looks most like a child. (laughs) I'm actually the one who is the most stubborn in this position. And so I'm exasperating them. Uh, we, We... provoke them to anger when we expect things from them that are above their age. That that they really, they they shouldn't be required to do that because that's above them, but we expect this. So, you know, sometimes I might ask my kids, hey, you fix yourselves breakfast, all right? Because I've got to do this. And then I come back and I find that they're eating donuts, you know, or or eating some kind of chocolate. I'm like, what what are you you doing? That's terrible for you. I'm like, dad, I'm a kid. (laughs) It's like, you're right, you are. I should expect that if I just say fix breakfast, this is what you're going to do. I shouldn't expect that they have the responsibility or the maturity of an adult. 
And although we can exasperate our children at times when we over-discipline them, know that parents, we can also provoke them to anger when we don't discipline them enough. Children need clear boundaries. To never know where the line is, is one of the most frustrating things for children. They'll lash out. Um, When I was in college ministry, I found that a lot of college students for the first time became really, really angry with their parents. And, and, And the reason was this, for a lot of it, but the reason was they were told for most of their life that they're the world's most special snowflake. All right, you know, they're... They, they literally, they could do no wrong, um, that everything, the world, you know, is, is theirs for the taking, that, you know, the parents are just the cheerleader, constantly the cheerleader, saying, you can do whatever you want in your life. Oh, that's great, no matter what the child does. And then they get to college, and they realize that no one else in the world believes that. Nobody else in the world treats them like that. And they get angry. Why didn't my parents tell me? Why didn't they correct me when I did this? Why were they always bailing me out when I messed up like this? And there's, that's a just anger to have at the parents. The key is you're finding this balance as a parent. What's just the right amount of discipline that I could put in? I'm not prescribing this, okay, but I want to describe what Lauren and I have chosen to do. I've, I've, I know better than to prescribe anything about parenting here when it comes in the details. Lauren and I, we have decided that we only discipline our children when they disobey. That's it, when they disobey. Um, not if, you know, if, if you get that dreaded little note when they're, um, they're in preschool or whatever that they bit somebody, you know, that dreaded, and you're like, my child's a biter. You know, you're just like, <laughs> I have failed. And now you're like, it was you, because they never tell the other parents which child bit their son, you know, or daughter. Um, you, you get that note, you're like, we, we didn't spank our child for that. We instead, we would come up and we say, you know, biting's wrong. And we're telling you, don't bite. And we explain why. Now, if one of our daughters would ever do that again, they're disciplined. We wouldn't spank our child if they just ran across the road. But then after they do that, we sit them down and we say, hey, listen to us. You don't run across the road. If they ever do it again, they're spanked. Um, we would discipline them. And the reason is we want them to know that obedience is what matters. Obedience. And you're to obey us just as we are to obey our Heavenly Father. And so we have really tried to instill that in our kids. Take that as you will. When my kids are completely messed up from 20 years from now, then you can say, you were wrong, all right? Now we'll listen to you, all right? All right, but before we move on from this section, um, I want to just challenge you, your parents, just to think of this. Think of your children as a mission field, and the Great Commission applies to you. You don't have to go off to some distant country. You can actually be really present with your home in your home, and you can fulfill the Great Commission, where you could go and you can make a disciple. You can lead them up to where hopefully they are baptized in the faith. And you can teach them and train them all that Christ has commanded them. And when you do that, lo, Christ is with you always. He's with you as you do this. All right, Paul, now he talks to the, um, he talks to the parents here. 
He gives them some specific things. He says that, um, that you are to raise up or to bring up your child. Um, you are to instruct them in the Lord. He says, bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Uh, that word bring them up is really nourish. You are to, to constantly find that way that you can nourish your children, that you could teach them, you could gently lead them to the Lord. Once again, you're fulfilling the great commission for your child. And then parents, I want to say this, or children, I guess I could say this. It applies to both. We are to, in our entire lives, try to find ways to honor our parents. Some of you now, I mean, you're no longer children, you're grown up, but you have aging parents. You're no longer to obey them, but you are still to honor them. I saw the most beautiful picture of this yesterday. Um, I went over to a a friend of mine's house uh, to help him build a handicap ramp for his dad, who's in a wheelchair. And so the whole time we're working, I get to see the way that he is relating to his father. He's in his 50s, his dad's in his 80s. Um, he sleeps in the same room as his dad to take care of him in a chair. He's done that for a couple of years now. Um, he is taking care of his dad in so many different ways. It's unbelievable. And as we, as we were putting together this uh, handicap ramp, I said, you know, I'm actually preaching tomorrow and honoring your father and your mother. And he goes, you know what? I remember hearing that as a child and it just always stuck with me that I'm to find a way to honor my parents. I um, mean, this is, he's in his fifties. And then he, he said this, he goes, I, I gotta be honest. In the last year, I've cussed more than I've ever cussed in my life. It's been really hard because I've also never known more joy than I know now where I literally get to be Jesus to my dad. I get to be Jesus to him and I get to find ways to honor him. And so no matter your age, as you, as you mature in life, we have to find ways to honor our parents. I tell my kids all the time, they're like, you know, we're talking about, you know, you know when money comes up and retirement comes up, like, are you saving anything for retirement? I was like, no, you are my retirement plan. Like, <laughs> it is completely dependent upon you. Take care of me. Honor your father and mother. Um, so I encourage you as, you, as you grow and as you get older, to continue to find ways to honor your parents. All right, let's look at work. Let's look at work. Ephesians 6, 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters. First thing I want to say right at the start is hear me that the Bible condemns every form of slavery. It does. Any form of racism, any form of slavery is outright condemned. You find in 1 Timothy, Paul, um, he talks about how the gospel is not compatible with those who enslave. You see in Paul's letter to Philemon how he is pleading with Philemon to free uh, his bondservant Onesimus. And then you really find just the entire theme of the Bible itself in which we want people from every tongue, tribe, and nation to come before and worship Jesus how everybody is created in God's image. Everybody's created with dignity. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. We are to treat others as we want to be treated. Literally everything chops down slavery. And you would find that in Rome, slavery decreased in proportion to Christianity's increase. 
directly decreased as Christianity grew to within just a few centuries, slavery was gone. So I want to say that at the start. But I also want to point out this, that the view that we have of slavery is not what Paul's describing here. That's not what he's talking about. Um, Some of your Bibles say, slaves obey your earthly masters. And some say bond servants obey your earthly masters. Even if you have the ESV, uh, I have an ESV here and it actually says slaves obey your earthly masters. Some of you have an ESV that says bond servants. Um, and in the older ESVs, they say slaves and as a footnote and it says this can be translated as bond servants. The new ESVs say bond servants and as a little footnote, these, this can be translated as slaves. And really context is what best leads you to know how to translate it one way or the other. The Greek word is just doulos, and it can mean slave, it can mean servant, or it can mean bondservant. It has a very broad meaning to it. And the reason it's kind of hard to translate this is because there is, in the first century, no one-size-fits-all view of slavery or serving. There's all types of slaves, all types of servants. And the biggest obstacle we have as we're coming to this text is actually trying to to understand this passage and its own culture of slavery versus what we think of slavery. Our own image we have is the biggest thing we have working against us because we picture 18th, 19th century slavery in America. And that is not at all what it's describing here. For starters, race had nothing to do with slavery in the first century. It did not matter where you came from. It did not matter what color was your skin. Slavery also was not for one's entire life. Usually it was for a negotiated period of time. Most slaves were set free by the time they were 30. Also, slaves did not, they were not seen as a distinct social class. They could freely go within any of the classes. Slaves had all levels of education. They had all sorts of jobs. They could be teachers, secretaries, barbers, accountants, physicians, shoemakers, bakers. Slaves could be any profession there. Slaves could own property. Often household slaves even had some superior conditions to the majority of the poor. So at the time that Paul's writing this, slavery in all of these different forms, and it runs the gamut there, well, it's culturally accepted over the entire world. In Italy, or in, yeah, in all of Italy, there's about 7 million people at this time. 3 million were slaves. 35 to 40% of the population in the first century were slaves. Some, some came as a result of um, conquest and captivity. And then many came as a result of just being hired out. People chose to enter into slavery as a way of having financial security. That's when you would think of a bond servant, all right? And so typically one would go and they would, if, if they wanted financial security and they wanted a good job, they could, they could enter into a seven-year contract. That was the most common contract. They get, and they would enter into that and say, for seven years, I will serve you for this amount of pay. And then when the seven years were up, they were free to do whatever they wanted. 
Some people even entered into slavery because you could gain Roman citizenship by becoming a bondservant to a Roman household. This is how you can make sense of a lot of the passages in Scripture, like in 1 Corinthians 7, when Paul says this, Were you a bondservant when called? Don't worry about it. But if you could go ahead and gain your freedom, do it. Are you free? Well, then don't become a bondservant. I mean, the way we're thinking is like, if you're free, why would you ever want to become a bondservant? But many people chose that path. But Paul says, hey, if, if you're already serving, great. You can still worship Christ in that role. If you're not, if you're free, well, don't do that. Don't jump in and be a servant. It's really incompatible with the gospel that we're going to find to, to willingly have that kind of relationship. So because of all of this, I think the best way for us to try to understand and apply this passage is for us to think of this in terms of work relationships. Paul's describing the way we should view work, how employees and their bosses relate. How should an employee view their boss? How should a boss view their employee? So many of you actually have a a job that's very similar to that of a bondservant. You might not know it at the time. You might not like, like that label, but you're probably pretty much a bond servant in which you've gone into a job and you've thought this. And I know a lot of you have thought this because I've talked to you. All right. The first few years in this job are going to be terrible. They're going to be terrible. But if I just kill myself in this job, if I just give up having a personal life, if, I'm just, if I just work crazy, do everything my boss expects, do all the grunt work, just push through, then after a few years, there's going to be a payoff. You're a bond servant. That's where you are. And that's why many of you did what you did. Some of you have no time off because you always have to be, have your phone on you. You always have to be at your boss's beck and call. You always have to be prompt in the way that you respond to the email. You can never tell your boss no. What he says is essentially law. And you've basically sold your freedom for a few years, hoping for the payoff. If this is you, well, then this passage applies to you. Paul Paul tells you then to obey your boss with fear and trembling which is a way of describing the utmost humility, even reverence, with a sincere heart, just as you would serve Christ. Just as wives were told to submit to their husbands as to the Lord, children were told to obey their parents as to the Lord, and now we have these bondservants being told that they need to do their work unto the Lord. Now, you're not told to do this because your boss is honorable. You're not told to do this because he or she is a great person. You're told to do this because it honors the Lord. So Paul tells us several places, but I think he says this best in Colossians 3. He says, whatever you do, work heartily, not as to men, but as to the Lord. We do all of our work as to the Lord. Now, I'm sure that most of you in here, you probably are thinking that in order to have a job where you can, where you could do it as to the Lord, or whether you could make your work an act of worship, or you could do the Lord's work, that that job has to be ministry, or maybe a nonprofit, 
You know, if I go to do a nonprofit um, or if I go into ministry, then I could, you know, quote, do the Lord's work. But I want you to hear carefully what Paul is saying. He says, no, 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 you don't have to do that to do the Lord's work. All work is the Lord's work. Whether you're an accountant, a sales rep, a janitor, whatever, it could be the Lord's work. Look at verse 6. It says, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but servants of Christ doing the will of God, doing the will of God from the heart. In all of your professions, you can do the will of God, God's work. All right, the person who I think explains this best is Martin Luther. He, he does his best. Keller does a good job of explaining Martin Luther, but, but go back to Luther if you really want to understand work. And Martin Luther, he says, if you really want to understand how God, you could do God's will in all of work, just think of the prayer, uh, the Lord's prayer, when he says, give us this day our daily bread. And think of all the professions, all the work that had to happen in order for God to answer the prayer of you having bread. So I did that this week. I, I, I had to make a sandwich and I got out my nature's own wheat bread um, that I got from Publix, all right? And so I, as I was opening that up to make the sandwich, I thought, I deliberately took time to think, what all had to happen for me to get bread? For me to get this bread? I've prayed, Father, give me this day my daily bread. I have it. What had to all happen? Well, first off, there had to be a farmer who bought some land, who bought, you know, some tractors and farm equipment that came from some other factory where a lot of professions had to happen. And then he had to buy some seed and then he had to plant it and then water it and take care of it. And then it grew. Then some other workers had to come in and had to harvest it. After it was harvested, then it had to be transported to another factory where there would be a mill and they would, they would turn it into flour. And then it had to be transported to another factory um, in which there would be bakers who would turn it into bread. And of course, there would have been all types of machinery and things there that had to come from someplace where other people were working. And then they would load this bread onto trucks after they had wrapped it in plastic, which came from some other place, another factory with other people working in it. And they loaded on trucks and the truck drivers would drive it to the public's. And of course, we're driving on roads that had to be maintained by other workers. Gets to Publix, and of course, there's accountants there, there's managers there, there's cashiers there, there's people who clean up, there's people who stock the shelves, there's all types of workers there. To where I finally could get the bread and buy it from money that I got from doing all this other stuff. And literally, when you just take a step back and you begin to think, how did I get bread? Literally hundreds of professions you start thinking of. All of these different people working to answer God's prayer of when you prayed to him, give me this day my daily bread. So God was working through all of those professions to give you bread. So really, there's nothing that we do. There's no kind of work we do that's detached from worship to the Lord, that's not done in service to him. That's what Paul's getting at here. We worship God and we, we do his work when we work. And then he describes how. He says, you know, you do this not as a way of eye service, not as people pleasing, but as servants of Christ, 
Um, In other words, don't work hard just when your boss is watching uh, or when other people are watching. And don't just act like you're working, but you're really checking Facebook, you know? Uh, You're really doing personal emails, um, but everybody else just thinks you're working hard on your computer. It's like, don't do that. You're not just trying to have the appearance of work, or you're not just trying to impress the boss when he comes in. Remember, you're doing your work to Christ. He's your boss. Now, this would have been so liberating for people, liberating for those who who thought they had such uh, unfulfilling jobs, who hated what they did, thought it had no meaning at all. And now Paul's saying, hey, forget about your boss here. Your real boss is the Lord. And all work is God's work. And if you honor your boss here, that's a way of honoring Christ. And all of a sudden you have given the meaning. And we all find meaning in the work that we do. It all could be worship. All right, so after Paul addresses the servants, he then goes on to address the masters. Verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. The masters or the bosses are now supposed to do their work as to the Lord. They're to treat their servants as they would want to be treated. And they are to never threaten, let alone be physically abusive. They're not even so much as to verbally threat A master must always keep in mind who his master is. And that master shows no partiality. That master is not impressed by a title. That master holds everybody the same before him. And bosses, you should always, always remember to whom you will have to give account. And you always treat those who are under your care and your authority with utmost respect and dignity. All right, I've I've got to conclude. Let me conclude by this, by reminding you that whether you are a wife or a husband or a child or a parent or a worker or the boss, Christ has modeled this for you. He's modeled it. Wives, he modeled submission for you in the way he submitted to the will of his father. Husbands, He modeled sacrificial love for you in the way that he gave himself up for the church. Children, he modeled obedience for you in the way that he obeyed his father perfectly. Parents, he modeled uh, being a loving and merciful father the way that he cared for and nourished his disciples as children. Servants or employees, he, he modeled this by becoming a servant himself. Jesus said, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. He was a servant. And masters or bosses, he modeled what a good, loving, merciful master looks like. There's not an area of life that Jesus did not transform or model before us. And hear me, if he was not the perfect model in every one of these things, you wouldn't be saved. 
if he dropped the ball on any one of them, we would have no salvation. But because he did these things perfectly, now when we do them, we actually point people to the way of salvation and we point them to who Jesus is. That's why it's so important that we live this way. We point people to who Christ is and we show them the gospel. If you don't live this way, be encouraged though. Christ did not just come as a model. He did come as your savior. And I know as I go through this, I fail over and over and over again. If Jesus was just a model, man, how damning that would be. But he's more than that. He saves us from all the areas that we have failed. He lived the good life we should have lived, and he died the death that we should have died. All that he might, or we might be his. If you would pray with me. Father, the gospel is such good news. It's good news for marriages, for the family, for work, utterly transforms every aspect of our life. There's not an area in our life that you have not claimed mine. Not one area. And praise, praise God for that. It's all for your glory and for our joy. And I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.